Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. Even if you've never seen them in person, you're likely aware of the springtime phenomenon in Washington, D.C. of the magnificent cherry trees. The writer, Diana Parcell, was surprised, as a longtime resident of the city, that she didn't know their heritage. Her new book brings it to light. Eliza Sidmore, the trailblazing journalist behind Washington's cherry trees, is published by Oxford University Press. I just wanted to start by asking you about your awareness of Eliza Sidmore. It grew out of the time you lived in Jakarta in the 90s and you bought a book there. What is the connection? Explain that. When I was living in Jakarta uh, 15 or 20 years ago, uh, working as a science writer in Asia, I bought a book called Java, the Island of the East. And, uh, It was remarkable. It was an 1897 travelogue. And I thought, wow, this book holds up pretty well after a century. The author, E.R. Sidmore, who was this guy, I wondered. And (laughs) so I went online to find out what took him out there a century ago. And I was stunned when I found out it was an American woman Mm. and that she had a remarkable career. And then when I read this was Wikipedia, that she was the one behind the cherry trees. I couldn't believe it. I had lived in Washington over 30 years. I went every year to see the trees. I'd never heard this woman's name. So it is really kind of ironic that that's where I found the story. I love it. I love that kind of question for biographers, especially first-time biographers or anybody listening to this podcast. Everybody wants to know where the ideas came from, and they often are in such unlikely places. And it is, you know, the strange (laughs) geographical nature of it is fantastic. And just to point out for people that Eliza Sidmore probably had to mask her first name in that book because women typically didn't write books back then. So that's an interesting aside as well. Um, So you call her a real life Forrest Gump. Why is that? It's really incredible because I did read online that she had authored seven books on Alaska, Japan, Java, China, India. So she was a remarkable traveler. And then I knew that from the entry that she was the first woman uh, elected to the Board of National Geographic in 1892, and then the cherry tree connection. So I knew there was already something interesting about her. But as I went in and started researching her, I was stunned at the people that she came in contact with, at the events. Mm. She covered two World's Fairs in the U.S. She wrote about four wars around the world uh, on different continents. And she was a kind of a regular visitor to the White House. And so uh, there are just some scenes that I found of her encounters with people that stunned me in terms of her being an eyewitness to significant events in history. 
But now her family destroyed her papers at her insistence when she died. So I know she published many stories, as you're describing, which was remarkable in itself for a woman at the time, for anybody really uh, to, to travel so widely then. So how did you piece together this story, given that the papers were destroyed? Right. I went to the Library of Congress. I had gotten uh, a lot of my freelance work had dried up. This was in the recession, uh, 2009. So I started going to the Library of Congress three days a week. And I said, I'm just going to go there and see what I can find out. And initially, I found very little. I found copies of her books. I found her listed in almost two dozen biographical indexes. And I did find some copies of her articles, but they were kind of sporadic. But I would say about Two years into the project, I had a huge break when I suddenly discovered she wrote under a pen name. She used her middle name, Ruhama. And when I plugged that into these newspaper databases, I ended up finding 650 articles she wrote mm. for one newspaper over a 10-year period. And wow. so that, the course, the beauty of a newspaper column is that it gave me datelines so I could construct for the very first time a chronology of her life. And mm. that gave me the backbone of the story. And so I took it from there. And yes, her papers were destroyed, but... We have her columns where you can really capture her voice. Plus, I uh, ended up finding some letters, uh, quite a few letters to her editors in New York and a friend in uh, in Washington. And so these letters, of course, brought out her voice and her character. So there was enough material there in terms of primary source material that I was able to reconstruct her life. But it took it was a lot of <laughs> a lot of research, uh, probably about two dozen different institutions where I found little pieces of the story. I loved reading your notes to see all the different places <laughs> that you went. Yes, absolutely. And now I want to ask you, too, before we have to talk about the cherry trees, but before we do, what is that kind of forensic research, that exacting and sometimes or often frustrating research that you're describing that you had to do and thrilling too. What is that like compared to journalism or academia? How, you know, what was that like for you in, in embarking on that kind of really needle in a haystack kind of crazy research? I absolutely loved it. And I was a journalist for many, many years. I did a lot of editing more than writing. And the problem with the writing is that I always wanted to do more research. I always wanted mm -hmm. to tell the story more completely. And of course, daily journalism doesn't allow that. Uh, and so I was really in heaven researching the book. And I think, you know, people say, how did you stick with this book for 10 years? And it is the process of discovery. It is just like a huge puzzle and each clue leads you closer and closer. And so that, you know, uh, finding those pieces that tie the story together uh, is really the satisfaction. I think a lot of biographers will tell you that, that they love the research. Yes. And you have to, at least on some level, and this certainly comes across in your book, like the person you're writing yeah. about, or at least <laughs> admire them in some way, right? Yeah, yeah, I tried to find negative things about her. I mean, it's like you don't want this just to be a hagiography where it's just, you know, oh, wow, she was this perfect person. But, you know, it's funny. I read hundreds and hundreds of references to her in daily newspapers where they would say Miss Sidmore this and Miss Sidmore that and she was doing this and she was doing that. 
and I just couldn't find uh, negative references to her. So she seems to have been really genuinely admired and liked. Uh, there were some cranky aspects to her, uh, very opinionated. She kind of overly dramatized things. But I think I capture that in a number of her letters where that does come through. Why do you think she she wanted her papers destroyed? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, Lisa, because I'm not fully convinced she did. Uh, hmm. I uh, didn't go into that in the book. But the issue was that she had a very young cousin, a young woman in her 20s living with her from Wisconsin. And it was really very nice to read that she wasn't alone when she died because, of course, she didn't marry. Her brother didn't marry. She was alone living in Geneva, Switzerland, after she took up an interest in the League of Nations. So this young cousin comes to Europe and they end up forming a very fast friendship. Well, when Eliza died unexpectedly after an appendectomy, the young cousin was left to settle the estate. And mm. what's interesting is she didn't destroy the letters right away. And I think that if Eliza had requested that outright, I would not be surprised if it wasn't just that the young cousin kind of felt overwhelmed and got rid of it because she had to get on with her life. I don't know. But she says, Eliza wanted this, and I can't document that, but uh, it's an open question. And there are so many when one is mining the life of someone one yes. never has met, never will meet, and who is long gone <laughs> before you come along. But I would think the uh, the connection with the cherry trees, let's talk about that for a moment and how you've illuminated this. And let's talk first about how that happened. And then also let's talk about whether Washington, D.C., I would hope, is grateful to you for unearthing the story. Well, the thing about the cherry trees is interesting. The, the story has been very muddied over the years. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of complications as to who did what, who is responsible, who gets credit. There's also the complicating factor that there were two batches of cherry trees from the Japanese. The first one came and had to be destroyed. And so a lot of people, when they go in and they write a, an article for the internet, for the web, you know, and they, they are pulling facts out and those facts get muddied and you know how these stories get perpetuated. And yes. so really lots and lots of uh, misperceptions and misinterpretations. And so that was one of the things that I really set out to do in the book was to tell the story as thoroughly and truthfully as I could figure it out. And that's where I went and found uh, the records and pieced it together. And there still are questions about when she met with these guys at the park, you know, the ones in charge of the city parks and all, and they rejected her idea. All we really have is her word. And yet she recounts that story in several different sources. Mm. And I felt that she was a reliable narrator. I didn't question it. Uh, some of the minor facts she got wrong, and I think it was because it was retrospective after 40 years she was recalling this. But for the most part, I went back and documented those as well as I could. Yeah. One thing I want to point out, though, that I discovered that, you know, she came up with this idea. She went to Japan and she got this idea. But what I found fascinating, once I discovered her journalistic career in D.C., she was this dedicated reporter in D.C. starting from the age of 19. She followed events in D.C. and she followed 
the very beginnings of Potomac Park. And Mm -hmm. it was uh, one of the biggest satisfactions to me in the book. The piece of uh, research was the day I found a column, a newspaper column of hers, where she described in 1883 going to the top of the unfinished Washington Monument, riding the platform elevator up, it was the workman's elevator, going to the top and looking out over the very beginnings of Potomac Park. And she's quoted in that column as saying, this is one day going to be the largest and most beautiful park in the city, a place of magnificence for future administrations. So this is before she ever went to Japan. So I think it sets up in her mind after she eventually saw the cherry tree several years later, that she could put these things together and say, wow, we are building this new park in the nation's capital. Wouldn't it be resplendent to put a grove of cherry trees there? Tell us how you constructed the background of this fantastic woman. I mean, she would have been estimable if she lived today, but that she had that spirit and vision and pluck and productivity for a woman when she lived. Um, How does one construct that personality of someone? Is it from all the papers that you read, all the pieces that you read? Yes. Because there were no other biographies. Yes, exactly. This was the problem. There were no other biographies. I will give credit that I found a cousin of hers, uh, Dan Sidmore, out in Illinois, who had done a master's thesis back in, I think, 2000. For his master's thesis, it was unpublished. But when I did my research, I tracked it down and I was able to get a copy of it. And the thing about that was that it gave me the family background. So Mm -hmm. I didn't have to go back and do all that. But, you know, he had limited research techniques at the time. And since then, we've had digitization of newspapers and things like that, and much more online indexes to papers. And so I was able to start with that and take a lot of that research further. But that gave me some of the family background so that I could go back and track down those records. The rest of it, from the journalism, of course, came from her own writings. And again, as I say, I found letters at the New York Public Library to her editors. I found a batch of papers at the Library of Congress that she wrote to a friend. I'd never seen them quoted. Uh, And so this is where you get the voice. The primary sources from the subject herself are critical. Uh, I I thought she came through pretty well in those papers and certainly in her correspondence to her editors. Uh, She was they were a lot of fun to read. Yeah. So now I want to shout out the various support you got from Biographers International because you did. And let's hear about it. Yes, it was interesting because I did apply for their uh, Hazel Rowley Award, which is for a first-time biography for your proposal. It was really a, a mark of validation for the project and for what I was trying to do in the project uh, to get that. It was a real feather in my cap as a first-time biographer. Yeah. It, biography, of course, you know, you're learning the skills of a historian, of a biographer, a storyteller. It's, you know, narrative. So there were so, it was such a learning curve. And for me, the learning curve was 
all the history in this book because she was such a traveler, learning about Chinese history and Japanese history, Washington history. So it was a lot of history, you know, a big steep learning curve because of all the historical context. Yes. Now, didn't you also receive a, a Robert Caro Award too? No, it no, was a didn't. it was a, a Mayborn Fellowship. Uh, Mayborn, yes, yes, okay. yes. yes. And that again was something I don't even know how I learned about it, and it came quite late. So I applied fairly late, and you had to submit three chapters, and they were pretty rough at that point. But I was able to do that application in a bit of a panic. And uh, I think it's a strength of the story, frankly. You know, the writing is the writing, but I think the strength of the story, it's a pretty exciting story to think well, that it's been lost to history for a century almost. It's incredible. that, And, and I love the, the circumstances under which you discovered it and the length of time it took you to ferret it out. It's all great for people who've never done this before and for people like me who have to hear these stories because they're inspirational as you slog through. So you great. never have any idea it will take that long. And then, of course, I ran into the pandemic about uh, six months after I signed the contract. I, you know, I needed these essential papers I had not tracked down and I had to wait essentially 18 months, you know, to get those and to plug them into the story. Well, you've done a super job. Congratulations on getting it out there. And um, thank you for sharing your story with us. I'm really excited to see how it comes out for you. And I'm sure once your book is out, people are going to start asking you to do all kinds of things you wouldn't even have expected. That's the, the half-life of the book <laughs> keeps going even after you're done with the worst part of it and you are done with the worst part of it. So <laughs> I certainly am. I'm, I'm really happy to close that chapter. <laughs> I started this book when I was about 60 years old. And wow, wow. if you want to do something as a retirement project, I <laughs> recommend it because it's wonderful to have something that excites you when you get up every day. Yes. The creativity of it, the, the, the organic process. I've already mentioned the discovery. And so in that respect, as hard as it was to do it, it was also, uh, it was intriguing. Intriguing enough that I, I got discouraged at times. I took some periods off where I said, I don't know if I can do this. But I always came back to the strength of the story. Yeah. And I think taking those breaks and getting frustrated is a very essential part of the process. And that's why this podcast is fun. So people can hear that they're not alone and that, you know, oh, I'm done with this, throwing it into the trash can kind of uh <laughs> episodes that we all run up against, even if it's not quite so histrionic, is, you know, completely normal. I think in a lot of ways, uh, it made me a writer. You know, I had been a journalist, but this really taught me a whole different level of craft skills. But the thing was the discipline of sitting down there. My husband used to just say, I, I just admire you so much. He said, you're so disciplined. You're sitting there at that desk every day. That's what and it takes. Right. Yes, right. it does. Yes. <laughs> yeah. People who want to be writers think they can just like, you know, declare that and sit down and write something. And it just doesn't happen that way. Oh, my goodness. I am constantly explaining to friends and new acquaintances how it doesn't work. <laughs> and 
I'm a oh. graduate student at age 59 at CUNY. Oh, and, wonderful. Uh, it's wonderful. amazing because people come into that program with, you know, they're lawyers or journalists yeah. or they have all kinds of backgrounds and they really don't understand. They don't want to hear what it takes to write a book. You know? Yes. I took several workshops, as you probably read in my acknowledgement. So I took a graduate course in research techniques for narrative writing. The proposal or the uh, concept paper I did became uh, exercise in wondering if I could find enough sources. And that's the one that, you know, le led me to this family uh, history. And then I took other courses in, you know, writing technique. Oh, one of the best was there was a very short workshop at the Library of Congress by one of their research experts who talked about the importance of these databases. Yes. And that is just such an untapped resources. People have no idea. No idea. Yeah, that's where I found the newspapers. But it was also where I found papers that would describe what it was like for these mail steamers to go up and down the inside passage to Alaska. Oh. There was this wonderful graphic description of that in an academic paper. That's where I could get the details. So there is a lot of material like that that I think goes untapped. And that's a great bit of wisdom for newbies to the forum. Uh, I'm sure I learned this at the bio conference. You don't see everything in the world on Google. <laughs> no, no. People think that everything's on the internet and it wasn't. No. It I isn't. have to tell you a great story, though, the story about her mother, because I was doing the research and, you know, the mother has this interesting history where she's married three times and two of those three marriages failed. And so there's this second marriage. Uh, and I knew that the parents separated in the third one. And that's why young Eliza was raised by her mother as a single woman. But there was this mysterious middle marriage where in the family history that I got, it said, oh, well, she married him and he died a year later. And this was 1848, I believe, in Wisconsin. And I tried and tried and tried to find more on that. But then I started finding the guy's name showing up in the West, where he goes hmm. out West and he starts a newspaper and he's doing this and that. And so, of course, there's this big question. And like four years into the research, you know, you're constantly going online, you're thumbing through to see what <laughs> new, and it pops up the evidence of a divorce, that the <gasps> mother's divorced in 1848. So, wow. It, wow is right, because then she marries for a third time to the man who becomes Eliza's father, and then they separate during the Civil War. And so the mother goes to D.C. Well, of course, this is a woman now who's got two failed marriages behind her, and she wants to start fresh. And she goes to D.C. That's where there are a lot of jobs during the Civil War. But I think it was the anonymity. I think it was just a fresh start. And uh, and that's how Eliza ended up in Washington, D.C. at the age of five. Proof that relationships have never been easy and uh, women <laughs> exactly. have been fleeing for generations <laughs> and raising kids on their own, yeah. on their own. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I oh. love that because this divorce showed up in some trial, an impeachment trial of a judge. And uh, some of the appendixes in this trial that were published just happened to have been 
put online. And, and when I did the search there, it popped up that he handled the divorce case. <laughs> so then I, I could go back and find more records where the mother actually went to court and had her name uh, reverted back to her earlier marriage and stuff mm. like that. So that's mm. where you start filling in these little pieces because yes. that had never been reported before. Well, I'm so glad to make your acquaintance in, in sort of person-ish. <laughs> this was terrific, Lisa. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. It's great. This is the fun part of all of it. Thanks again. Thank you for interviewing me, Lisa. It was great. Diana Parcell is the author of Eliza Sidmore, the trailblazing journalist behind Washington's cherry trees, out from Oxford University Press. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles, California. Alani Hodge created our theme music. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.